Welcome to TA1, everything you wanted to know about adventure racing, and then some. I'm your host, legendary Randy Erickson, flying solo right now. <clears throat> stuck the stuck my co-host Jimmy and Stevie in their cages outside because it's a really nice night. Chili dog still with Paulette at work, so it's going to be quiet. You don't have to, uh, you're not going to get your eardrums blasted out by a bird tonight. At least uh, during this. I don't know if they were during our interview or not. <clears throat> um, I don't know. Facebook notifications. Uh, let's go on. I had a nice long weekend last Saturday, Friday, Saturday, shooting the Black Hills 100 trail race at the 100 miler on Friday, starting. And then the 50 mile starts at 6, the 50K at 8. And the 30k at nine, and go to the river crossings. And blah, blah. had a nice 40-hour uh, uh, session of media, mediaing, if that's word. Uh, and yeah, in other news, the big picture, the original big picture, is coming to uh, Untamed New England. Decided I had time to uh, send it ahead, so. All you untamed New Englanders can uh, look forward to that. Uh, that's it. I don't have much more to say, which is good, right? Who wants to listen to me? So anyway, um, this is a little bit different one as I talk about during our little interviews. So uh, how's it go? It's, uh, oh, it's Chris Hardwick says, Katie, roll the thing. And everybody else, go fast, take chances, and thanks for listening. Bye. This is Hollis. It is. This is Randy. Hey, Randy. How's it going? Well, pretty good. So this is, um, I think, a first for the podcast. I think you're the okay. first person that I've had on that I literally don't know, don't know anything about, don't know anybody you know. <laughs> You're like this enigma. So welcome. <laughs> Thanks. So am I? Uh, am I live on there being recorded? Is that the? Yep. Firing? We're okay. We're started. So you didn't Excellent. say anything bad so far. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, uh, I guess how were we heard of? Or um, yeah, how how was that process? I don't know how we were found. Um, well, watching Expedition Africa, and it's like. Who's this? Who are these Americans? I know none of these. <laughs> are they really American? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, that was quite the experience over there. Yeah. Well, tell tell me who you are. Tell the pe- tell um, the people who you are. Yeah, um, my name's Hollis Brake. I um, I got kind of invited onto an adventure race team after it already been formed, and they had a member um, change their mind. Um, so I was kind of a late addition. Um, Rick McBee is the team captain and he kind of had this dream of doing a six day expedition race and I believe that started all the way back when Eco Challenge was still on TV so he'd been thinking about it for a while and had been doing um, shorter shorter races and um, him and the teammate that left uh, had done quite well um, in some local races and um, yeah so it was Rick McBee and Ben Brown and Jen Tucker um they're all uh, common friends through family and church, and uh, 
I'd met Rick just through um, like slacklining at the back of a, a job that I worked at when I first moved to Colorado, and um, so kind of you know fast friends through um, slacklining, and then that turned into you know ice climbing and getting some canyoneering beta, and we were both like-minded as far as we like the outdoors and um, like to push ourselves in in suffer fests, and so. We were on our way to go ice climbing one day, and he was talking about adventure racing, and um, I mentioned that I would like to be in on it if uh, if he had an opening. At the time, there was no opening. A couple months later, we went ice climbing again, and I said the same thing, and he said, still no no opening. And uh, I don't know, maybe a few weeks later, he called me up and said, hey, what do you think? We, we had a teammate change their mind. and um, So, yeah, the, it was basically like, uh, do you... Uh, uh, a short race in Moab uh, a week out. Everything's paid for. Um, you know, see how it works out with the team. And then we had a 30-hour race in Bend um, a few months after that, and that was a true test of how we do with mm-hmm. no sleep and working together, et cetera. And that went really well. And then we proceeded to train for the next nine months for for Africa. So it was it was I got suckered into it <laughs> slowly. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Okay, here, here's the thing. Are you going to do another one? I personally would love to. Um, you know, I haven't, uh, I haven't fully um, processed everything from that race. It was considerably different than how I had imagined it would go, um, which I also expected, right? Um, yeah. I, I had no, no true idea of what it was all about besides watching three- and five-minute videos of other Expedition Africa races and um, I had a good friend um, that coached a mountain bike team with me that was actually part of a winning eco challenge team for two years. Um, Sarah Ballantyne, and uh, okay. so I got some beta from her. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it was always you know little hints, and um, when we talked about pain and sleep deprivation, there was a little giggle afterward. You know, there was <laughs> you can't fully understand that until you really experienced it. So yeah, um, yeah, and I think. Um, you know, we had some some good plans going into it, and I think we had a really good game plan for the amount of experience we had, which was none. Um, and you know, at some point, everything kind of goes sideways, and some things work out, and some things don't. But uh, overall, it was a really positive experience for me personally. And I think, um, to be honest, our team hasn't really talked about it a whole lot since we all rushed back into our day day to day lives and. Um, you know, I've been swamped with work as soon as I got back, and uh, I also got engaged in South Africa, so I'm trying to um, keep that relationship alive. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so cool. It was uh, it, it was quite the adventure. So okay, yeah. I'm going to assume you didn't get engaged to a lady in South from South Africa. No. Um, <laughs> so Susie went over as our media person. She's okay. um, we had met only a few weeks before our bend race and she was um, pretty excited about the idea of adventure racing and wanted to see what it was about. So she went to bend with us and got a chance to check it out. And um, yeah, we've been uh, fast friends ever since. And um, so she really wanted to join and go to Africa as well. And so we did a few days before the race and um, stayed south of Cape Town and used that to get over jet lag and, um, yeah, and, and that relationship had gone uh, better than I could have hoped, and 
so yeah um anyway she she was a a part of our team going as media and support and so anyway yeah it was great yeah well let's that's the important thing let's talk about that did you um did you ask her at like privately or like during the race or how did how did you ask her can well yeah we tell you can i tell you my story first Oh, sure. Please do. Please do. So I think I've told this before. I asked Paulette, that's my wife, um, I actually spray painted it on the road while she was time trialing. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, all of my teammates uh, wanted me to do it at the finish line. They all all thought that if it went sideways um, before the race that I definitely would not be capable of racing properly. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I, I personally, we had a few days before the race that was kind of our time. And so I decided to do it, to do it there and have it not necessarily be associated with the race, but be associated with our travel. And, uh, yeah, I think it was good. So I'm, I'm going to say that probably was the correct way to do it. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, I don't know if you know my, my outcome, but I actually on, uh, day five super i think like two in the morning i had strained a calf muscle coming down from snookop and i uh, actually had to bow out of the race on day five so um it, the finish line proposal would have been a lot less um extravagant <laughs> uh, that's a well, good point there yeah. yeah so um let's let's talk about you for a while and then we'll and then we'll talk about the race because one sure. of my favorite things is when somebody just I can just say, tell me about the race and not talk. But um, so, what was your background that you thought you might like adventure racing? Um, I'm trying to think, I've uh, I've raced mountain bikes. Um, I, I started out racing downhill a long time ago. I've kind of ventured into more endurance stuff. I um, a, a good friend of mine um, introduced me to the Sufferfest theory, which was kind of chipping away at yourself like an onion um you know you're always capable of doing more than you think you can and um typically you find out that when you know continuing on is really your only option um Mm -hmm. so i I started doing long long road rides um i did a 167 mile ride in oregon um before i moved out to colorado i did 155 mile uh race here in in Montrose, Colorado, where I live, which is just a, you know, fundraiser and uh, a fun ride, but it has a timer on it. So I was trying to break the record and um, managed to do that. And so I guess um, I've always just kind of slowly chip away at myself and, and see what I'm capable of. Um, and so that's kind of the underlying portion of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other side was when I train for long road rides or long mountain bike rides or long trail runs, uh, typically it would be months of months, months and months of training, um, that was very specific. And if I wanted to go canyoneering that weekend with friends, it was kind of looked at as wasting time because I should be doing a long run or a long, you know, a long ride if, if it was a focus there. And, uh, with, with adventure racing, really anything you do in the outdoors is kind of training for it. So, yeah, for me, it was a lot more time training but it was a lot more um diversified Mm -hmm. so if we were going to go you know paddle the river here i could turn that into training if i was going to go for a long bike ride i could turn that into training so uh, you know trips to trips to moab for the weekend that were camp outs i just 
go on a ride after we got back from a ride with friends and um, still camp out and eat and you know everything with everybody but I might go out longer than everybody else or things like that so it didn't take away the social aspect it didn't seem like the training was uh, more mentally difficult it was just more of it so I really liked that aspect um, yeah yeah you're so. one of the first person first people I've kind of talked that have um articulated that but the fact that um yeah adventure race training is can be more sociable <laughs> it's hard to believe yeah but, <laughs> so. yeah i have a big a big group of friends here that like to do a bunch of different stuff um when i lived in oregon if you were a road rider you didn't necessarily mountain bike and if you're a mountain biker you didn't road bike and if you rock climbed you didn't bike at all and nothing really crossed crossed over too much so i was always kind of a more of a weirdo I, I did a lot of different things and i didn't do any of them super well um because i was always jumping back and forth between things so i've always kind of joked that i was an adventurous schizophrenic um <laughs> and and that's supposed to be pretty helpful in this in this um sport yeah so. are are you like that in in real life as the kids say um, or are you more focused <laughs> I, I kind of jump back and forth. I probably plan less and play more than a lot of people. Uh, yeah. I do, I'm a mechanical designer, and so I do have to kind of lock down on numbers and be very, um, I don't know, precise with a lot of things on a day-to-day basis. But I definitely am not like that as soon as I clock out. So uh. kind of go with the flow and have fun with whatever's happening. And um, In fact, the, the training and planning for the race was, was actually really good. Um, it's a really good test for me. I feel like I'm very easily motivated, but not always the most disciplined. So um, that it was a good, a good eye opener for that, and an ability for me to improve it. So yeah. So um, yeah. I, I, let me. I want to clarify: Are you a mechanical designer or a mechanical engineer? Uh, mechanical what, designer. What do you do? So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. What's that? I, uh, <laughs> I work for for a solar company, and I um, basically started engineering school. Um, and before that degree was done, I got an internship and decided to drop out of school and and work full time. And so, over the next eight years, I did mechanical engineering work without an engineering degree. And by the time you know, I kind of shuffled around through a few different jobs. I had my foot in my in the door and had enough experience to end up never going back to school. And so. Uh, yeah, I do a lot of engineering work, but um, I work for a solar company, and, and we kind of jump back and forth between some small mechanical parts and a lot of structural steel and kind of bigger bigger projects. So it's a utility-scale solar company based out of Carbondale, Colorado. So, so well, this see, this gets funny because, you know, I said I don't know anything about you and don't have anything in common. And already, I know Sarah, she's been on the podcast. Um, okay. I think I think you're the third engineer for a solar company that's been on the podcast. <laughs> so, um, Apparently, it attracts a type. Yeah. Well, and and we'll get back to adventure racing. Everybody knows eventually we get there. But so is like solar that kind of new frontier? Is that one of the few places where maybe you could have got a job without a degree? I mean, that seems kind of bizarre. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I've I've, um, I've kind of had to step out of engineering and back into it a few different times. Typically, mm-hmm. it's when I choose to live in a smaller 
more rural area that doesn't have as many jobs. Um, but as far as engineering work, um, you know, I've, I've jumped around a lot over the years. So when I was in 2001 is when I started my internship. Um, that was my, my third year of engineering school. Um, and that's when I, when I dropped out. And so that was for a company that designed, um, sun visors for airplanes. Super random. Didn't like that industry. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't really exist. You wouldn't think. Um, but I worked for a recycling company in Eugene that, you know, de- designed these huge structures and, um, and, uh, recycling sorting equipment. So mainstream or mainstream, uh, recycling. So, and then you know, when I moved here, I, I worked for a, a smaller company as a machinist, uh, designer. So when I went back to school, I also learned how to run CNC machines. So I've always kind of been more of a hands-on designer, um, less of a numbers counter engineer, but, um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. so it's a, I've also managed a bike shop for three years when I couldn't find an engineering job. So I've kind of yeah. had to jump around and take a little bit lower paying engineering jobs. Um, not always the, the cream of the crop, but it's been an environment that I enjoy being in. So pay it yeah. off. Well, that's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, um, a, a pretty good balance. Yeah. Once in a while. Yeah. Take a little yeah. less, a little less loot for a little better lifestyle. Yeah, and I still, um, even though I'm working for the solar company, I still, you know, work a few hours a week for a hut service that I backpack heavy stuff out into huts to stock them with food. And um, I also teach lessons at a kayak shop that does river surfing. Um, so I'm always trying to get outside, even even if I am kind of locked down to a computer most of my week. So huh. provides a good so, balance. So a renaissance, man. I love it. So, um, <laughs> I've never been um, called that before. <laughs> Well, I, I'm not sure that that's not becoming the new norm. I mean, we, I mean, everybody knows. I mean, nobody takes a job with IBM and going to sit there for 40 years anymore. I don't think. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, yeah, right? That's what you do. You'll just when when this job's gone, you'll find another one. Yeah, and um, I I think engineering jobs specifically are are getting a little bit shorter term. Um, mm. I think when an engineer solves the problem, they're not needed as much in the job anymore. And so yeah. they typically hire a bunch of engineers to solve a problem quickly, and then they have to lay a good portion of those off. And um, one of the benefits of being a lesser-paid engineer is that I typically get to stick around quite a while longer. Yeah. But uh, that hasn't always been the case. But it's been pretty consistent that I'm, you know, one of the one of the few left after a change like that. And um, and there, it's not a huge huge pay change, but it's yeah. Um, you know, enough to where it makes sense on paper. Um, again, I can go out to the shop and run a CNC machine. And so I've managed to kind of work myself into a good, good spot. But yeah. Um, anyway. all right. So, so just one, no, two more engineering questions and then we'll move on. I should maybe just yeah, start yeah. an engineering podcast. Um, <laughs> the, so in today's climate, when you turn, you know, you go look for a job and turn a resume, and it's got fifteen different companies. Nobody bats an eye at that anymore, I imagine. Yeah, it's um, you know, I, I, I've had to I typically kind of clean up a resume and take out some of the non-engineering stuff, um, yeah. so I'll keep a few key ones in there. Okay. Um, but at that point, you start to see, you know, some gaps in time, and, and usually once I once I talk in an interview. Um, all that stuff gets cleared up really quick and yeah. I can just kind of say, 
you know, I did what I had to do to pay bills through this period and I enjoyed the place where I lived and um, and that was the decision versus moving to LA, like LA for a for an engineering job where I would be kind of miserable. So yeah, um, okay. yeah. Okay. So I think I've moved around a little bit, but I've stayed pretty pretty true in most of the spots I've been. So okay. Anyway. Um, okay. Here's the last engineering question. Yeah. Why are there so many engineers in adventure racing? Because there's a bunch. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. I uh, I don't know. It's it's funny because um, you know the things that you have control over in engineering world, you really don't have any control over in adventure racing. So maybe it's the the balance of of those two things. But yeah. that's uh, I haven't been able to process that. Yeah, it, maybe okay. So in engineering, there's kind of isn't everything cut and dried and in adventure racing nothing is cut and dried so maybe you guys just need the chaos in your life yeah i feel like that's the case for me i, I kind of thrive in that environment i don't really know yeah. to see when everything is fully structured um so i get kind of bored with that eventually mm-hmm. so that has yeah. been a good thing for me but yeah that could that could possibly be it okay um all right slack lining yeah <laughs> what okay Full disclosure: I couldn't walk a slack line if you laid it on the floor. It just my my and and I I make I say it funny, but my entire life I just have this kind of weird balance thing. Like I can skateboard, yeah. but I can't roller skate. Um, <laughs> what is what what's slack line? Tell me about it. How do you do it? Why is it fun? What do you get out of um, it? For me, it's like uh, it's kind of a, a forced focus. Um, I can hop on there for 20 or 30 minutes. It's a good stress reliever. Uh, I used to do it at lunch break. That's how I met Rick. Uh, we had two trees in the back of our, the shop that I worked at and we would just kind of have one set up there all the time. Uh, when I lived in Eugene for a few years, we had one in the backyard and it's just one of those things that, uh, you slowly get better at the more often you do it. So mm-hmm. if you spend five hours on it, you're not going to get as good as if you spend 20 or 30 minutes, five times a week on it. So you just, takes a little bit of dedication and um a little bit of practice up front with some with some proper technique and then after that it just kind of expands with that being said i'm far from the best at it i'm uh, i like short shorter lines you know in the like 50 60 foot range at the most and um i'm trying to do like jump tricks on them and stuff like that not necessarily high lines over huge cliffs or ravines or anything like that so I do have some friends that set up big, long, long high lines like that, and it's amazing to watch. But I, I don't have the focus to do anything like that. So, huh. um, is, yeah, it's more is of a that schedule what, thing. Yeah, is that what it takes for for that? I mean, is it literally the difference between fifty feet and three hundred feet is focus? Uh, it's it's definitely a timing and practice thing. Um, mm-hmm. On like a three hundred foot line, when you correct you know you kind of snap your hips and the you see a wave go down the line you can actually watch the wave go down the slack line and come back and when it's back to you it can throw you off so it's a lot smaller movements um anyway the the frequency of the line changes so with a with a short line you set them up pretty tight and the frequency is really fast and small but when you have a really long line they're they're large movements they're really slow so you have to kind of change um, change how you how you try to stand on them and how you react. So, yeah. Huh. You know. What? 
it's like everything, right? It's so much more um, thought than what it looks like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think a lot of it's in in, in your head um, when you get past the practice portion up front. It all kind of goes into your head, and um, just need to relax. And yeah, I think um, it, it really just comes down to practice, just like anything else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Um. Well, I I will say Rapid City here, where I live, um, one of the city parks, they have a uh, permanent Highline course, which. You know, we're, oh, it's amazing. not a very progressive city, so I'm like, cool, but I'm not there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I wish we could set some stuff up like that when we go into the backcountry. I have a few friends that do rigging, and you kind of always have to do it in the underground a little bit. There's very mm. few places where they'll let you set up a high line without, uh, without freaking out or calling the cops around here. Yeah, yeah. Is that uh, mm-hmm. kind of one of those uh, ask forgiveness and not permission? Yeah, for the most part, that's where it's at in this area. Yeah. So. Yeah, cool. Um, okay, adventure racing. Yeah, back to the subject. <laughs> how, how long did it take you to get to uh, South Africa? <laughs> oh, man. That's a good way to um, start. <laughs> yeah, the people on the team all kind of had different experiences. Um, yeah, it, I, I got off really easy, I feel. We had a, a quick little flight to uh, Minneapolis, and then we had a 10, or no, an eight-and-a-half-hour flight to Amsterdam. We had a 22-hour layover there and got to cruise around and check out the city and then flew 10-and-a-half hours south. So our first trip there was really easy, um, and, and honestly, everything went really smooth. I'd have to swear by Delta Airlines in that one. Everything went really good for us. Um, Rick, our team captain, he flew United. He did not have that experience. <laughs> he was trapped, I think, in Detroit for a little bit and then trapped in Europe somewhere for a little bit and had to get his flight switched to Johannesburg and then switch over to Cape Town at the last minute. So I think it took him four or five flights to get to Cape Town. Um, and it was absolutely hectic. And his wife and her friend had to take a flight the next day um, so he could make it in time for us to pick him up and take him to registration. So he had a very stressful arrival in Cape Town. And um, you know, where Susie and I kind of had this three-day layover in a little surf town and had a little condo to ourselves and got engaged. Um, he was mad dashed to get there for registration. And it was pretty chaotic. But, yeah, yeah so well, a day. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, the first rule is that it, once the race starts, it gets easier. I, <laughs> I, I never thought that was so true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, isn't it is, – could you, like – feel your body relax when the gun went off yeah it was a it was a weird sensation i've told a few friends that i I never really got nervous for this race and i think a lot of that's from ignorance um but a lot of it we we really prepared our bodies um it's like the most training i've ever put in for anything and and they just uh you know it's registration day or it's arrival day and then it's registration day and then it's you know the flag parade and they just kind of slowly turn it up to where it's you're just at a certain point you're just kind of following the people in front of you and yeah. uh you know we're standing on the beach with an american flag and um and then the gun goes off um so i never really got a chance to to process it and get super nervous um but yeah it, the the race start was a huge relief just with logistics and getting there and um kind of finally having a moment that we'd look forward to for i guess a year um yeah. so yeah um and that maybe me. Yeah, maybe you don't. I'm sure you know the reason for this, but why did the team pick 
Afri- Expedition Africa? Um, it had already been picked before I was part of the team, yeah. and I believe that I, they were originally looking at Paraguay, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. And um, when they started looking into it, you know, jungle, everything's trying to kill you, basically. Yeah. So yeah. I think they wanted something a little more hospitable. Um, and and honestly, the Expedition Africa crew, um, they're they're about as hospitable as you can get. Um, yeah. I, I've never felt like there was uh, any lack of care. I, I feel like part of a family with them at this point. Um, and it's to the point where, like, I feel like I could go stay on couches at any of their houses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it was a really neat experience to meet everybody. But I think that's a big part of it. We knew they ran good races um, and and had their ducks in a row. And mm-hmm. they put on whatever, 8 or 10 or 12 of them at that point. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think a big part of it was organization and uh, hospitality and uh, not wanting to be in the jungle, to be honest. I think that's a, that was one of the reasons I said yes to it anyway. Yeah, the jungle thing is um... – it t- it takes I don't know I I'm not a big fan. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it partially for me from yeah for from a media standpoint, if if when a race goes in the jungle they're just like we're we're we just got to wait till they come out um, you know because there's no <laughs> there's no access so yeah yeah you can't even boring. fly a drone through that video yeah um, so tell me now that was the part where you I, tell me about the race. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, originally we were going to be taking, we were going to do ocean rowing, and they kind of teased us on Facebook with different different parts of that. So I was spending time on a rowing machine trying to prepare for that. I get horrible motion sickness, so I had gone to the doctor and got motion sickness patches and was all prepared to be nauseous for the first day of the race. And um, it, it, I don't know if anybody knows, but it, Africa, specifically that Cape Town and, and Western Cape area, had been in drought for four or five years, and they were on, like, day zero for water when we bought our airplane tickets. And um, and so we were expecting these really dry conditions with a ton of rowing. And anyway, turned out to be um, foggy and wet most of the time. Yeah. And um, I decided to bring rain pants, like, maybe a week before we flew out. I bought some. I live in Colorado. It doesn't really rain here. If it does, it's for 30 minutes and it goes away. And I was thinking, Expedition Africa, it's going to be Africa hot. You know, we always yeah. joke when we were in Moab, oh, this is Africa hot. So <laughs> anyway, long story short, it started out on the coast in the rain. And I'm running with a rain shell and wearing a life jacket. Um, they decided at the last minute to cancel any of the, any of the rowing, um, even for like the procession to get our spot trackers, which was um, for me personally, uh, a huge good thing. Um, I think it was kind of a bummer for, for some of the other teammates, but um, ultimately we just looked at it as a positive. And so there's 12, I think roughly 12 miles of orienteering the coastline, which was awesome, uh, down to the beach and back up cliffs and some rock scrambling, which our team's really good at. And um, and they, they posted some really good videos of that if people want to check them out. I think you can go to YouTube's. Uh, their channels like Kinetic Events. It might be Kinetic, Kinetic Events Africa, but they have um, videos of each of the days. And so, yeah, it was a, a quick orienteering section. We got to leave our packs at checkpoint 12. Um, so it was light, quick running. And then uh, when we finished that, it was a quick transition to kayaks, and it turned into a 31-mile upstream paddle. Um which I'm the weakest rower on the team. Um, yeah. So it kicked my butt. I definitely required a lot of help from Ben. He's our, probably the strongest rower. 
uh, or paddler. And, uh, so that was, it was good. I had some pretty solid muscle spasms and felt pretty weak and, um, it was definitely an eye opener to how challenging the event was going to be. We finished in the dark, um, which I casually done a full moon kayak session with my mom once. Um, so paddling at night in an unknown river was interesting for me. <laughs> um, it was super fun and, uh, anything that was even remotely scary, I just tried to embrace it and, and had a ton of fun with it. I, I like being challenged and, um, but yeah, so I think at that point it was my first time feeling weak on the team, uh, having other teammates pull me, uh, and do work for me while I like had to eat and, you know, drink electrolytes. So my shoulders would just quit spasming and things like that. So the, the paddle with me pretty good. And I was like a puppy with my tail between my legs, getting out of the boat. Um, so that was, that was cool. And, but it was a beautiful river. Uh, it was quite the experience. So, uh, anyway, um, from there we moved into a trekking leg. Um, I'd kind of forgotten what color of plastic bag I'd put my change of clothes in and the transition. So when I got in there, it was dark and kind of chaotic and I thought that I was going to have to do the next, I think it was about 23-ish miles or something like that. Um, I thought I was going to have to trek that in my wet kayaking clothes and was pretty much close to hypothermic when we got out of the boat. So I was a little nervous about that. So I just had my like rain shelves zipped around my waist while I let things dry. And then as people started pulling things out of the transition bag, we, we found my clothes and I was able to kind of race back together. So we had a really slow transition. Um, yeah, I don't know how much detail you want. I can kind of go all day, but, uh, you can go all day because yeah, um, people people uh, love to hear this. Okay. So yeah, I went to, um, went into the, into the trekking leg, really excited to not be in the boat and really excited to have dry underwear. (laughs) Um, and, uh, that was a pretty cool experience. You know, we're really motivated as a team and, and, um, just really excited to be there. And, um, we had some really good luck finding the first couple transitions or the first couple checkpoints. And, uh, and we were able to like kind of turn our headlamps to red and hide when we saw people trying to do dead reckoning through the big desert area, you know, so we wouldn't give the checkpoint away. And uh, it just felt fun to kind of be head to head with some other teams before it really spread out. And uh, anyway, we got to the next, uh, we were following this next kind of road to it. I use road really loosely. It's like you could kind of see that a tire had been on this desert at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was definitely not exactly where we anticipated it to be on the map. And, uh, you know, there's big power lines above. And so we're, our compass is being a little bit weird with that kind of stuff. And I think um, later on we found out there's a bite valve on the backpack that was throwing a compass off for a little bit when we were being lazy and holding it to our chest um, instead of out in front of us a little farther. But, yeah, so we had some hiccups in the navigation, and we ended up having a hard time finding a checkpoint. Um, there was a creek bed that we were supposed to be looking for and it turns out in the dark with a with a decent headlamp but not the best headlamp we went to the first creek bed and started looking but there's another one about 100 meters farther so we will search back and forth for i don't know if it was 20 minutes or two hours but it was a, it felt like forever and t- you could see teams kind of bottlenecking there and um anyway finally i think ben found uh this you know some footprints going up over a ridge and we decided to follow him and just kind of hope for the best. And we ended up getting into another creek bed. And at that point it was, you know, one and a half, two times as big as the first creek bed we were in. And we could kind of smell blood in the water. So we 
started running around and found the checkpoint. And then uh, after that, everything, our, our navigation kind of went sideways. We were looking for a fence line. We found a fence that was kind of partially on the ground. Um, hoped that that was it. But again, our bearings were a little off. And at that point, we got lost in the night and we were behind schedule. So we decided to push through the first night and not sleep, which looking back is not, not a good idea. So I think by the time we slept the first time, it was in the middle of our bike leg. And, um, again, it's all kind of fuzzy at that point. I had some pretty good sleep deprivation. But uh, from what I remember, it was about 48 hours since we woke up is when we finally got to go to sleep. So um, definitely seeing hallucinations, you know, bushes that look like rhinoceroses. Um, I was joking with the race promoters uh, that I kept hearing kids on a playground, um, like a seesaw, merry-go-round type squeaking and then some, like, giggling. And uh, anyway, I... I'd said that to probably 20 or 30 different people that were asking me what the weirdest thing was I experienced. And that one kept coming up on the list. And anyway, one of the promoters said that the, some of the farmers play audio uh, to keep leopards away. So uh-huh. I'm hoping that that's what I heard, but um, I swear it was kids on a playground. Um, so yeah, was, that was kind of weird. And uh, again, all part of the, all part of the adventure. Yep. Um, and uh, I think at that point we were underneath some power lines when we really realized we needed to fall asleep. And uh, I think we all kind of came together and we said, 15-minute break, you know, we're all going to sleep for 15 minutes. And so Jen, she's she's a little smaller than us, a lot smaller, like half of our body weight. And uh, she gets cold really easy, so she's kind of jumping around and trying to stay warm. And um, Rick and I lay down to, to go to sleep for a few minutes. I hear a watch alarm go off and Jen's like, all right, guys, you got to get up. I'm freezing to death. So she had never gone to sleep. And uh, anyway, I'm rustling around and getting things back together in my pack. And I hear Rick doing the same thing behind me. And Ben's already up grabbing his bike. And all of a sudden I turn around and I see Rick on the ground and he's rolling over and putting his bivy on and getting ready to go to sleep. (laughs) 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 uh, Communication was lost. You know, he was so tired. He was ready to go to sleep. But, kind of death staring us um it was was a pretty funny story looking back at it and i think uh you know jen was ready to freeze to death at that point really wanted to move so she was she was a little short and rick was a little short back and i was confused what was happening and now we can all kind of look back and laugh at it um but uh yeah we ended up going and um another hour or so from there um, we'd heard rumors of uh, local farmers being really hospitable and letting people sleep on their porch or in their barn or whatever. And so we spotted this farmhouse and we decided to kind of move toward it. And I'm pretty sure that was my idea, but I have a 1200 lumen headlamp and, uh, for my bike and I'm shining it around and can't see anybody in a house, you know, it's three in the morning or something silly. And I didn't want to be too rude. So I'm not trying to shine it right in the windows, but definitely wanted to make sure that, you know, nobody was there and we were just going to sleep kind of behind the house and definitely looked kind of abandoned. And then we saw a planter box that was not abandoned. <laughs> we decided we'd go and sleep kind of in this barn that was over near it. And so Ben uh, starts taking this kind of, you know, log stick kind of thing off the front. And it's just this big metal gate, you know, tin roofing. And it's, it's a whole process to get these gates open. So we can just lay down inside where it's dry because it's been raining on us and the ground's super muddy. And um, anyway, all four of us are there with our bright headlamps and bike lights. And all of a sudden, this head pops up from the back corner of the barn. And uh, 
So I don't know if there's just workers sleeping in there or what, but we're kind of in a part where they don't speak English and they don't speak much Afrikaans. And I just kind of said, sorry, you know, in English and, and uh, all of us, you know, blankly turn our headlamps away and close this thing up and leave. And um, anyway, I just wish I could hear his, their side of the story, you know, like yeah. alien lights coming in and um, speaking a foreign language. And, um, again, talking with the race promoters, they were unsure whether that area had gotten any notification that racers were coming through even or, or anything. So, um, they may or may not have known that we were even supposed to be there or what was going on. So lots of, lots of confusion. We ended up going about a hundred yards from that barn and just sleeping in the mud, um, for about two and a half hours before it started raining again. And then we got up and made our way to a pretty gnarly hike a bike, um, and then worked our way toward a church, which was like a halfway point. Um, and we met up with Susie. She's doing media, so that was awesome for me. Got a little recharge and um, got to refuel water and um, get some food. They had made some uh, pasta. and Basically, you could – luxury checkpoint, right? You can uh, yeah. order ahead before the race starts. And they were watching the trackers to see when teams were coming, and they would have pasta, like, waiting on the table for you. That's pretty so, cool. Yeah, that was very luxury. Um, and it was cool. The, the, all the local, like, small villages and, or towns um, were just amazing, at, like, how hospitable they were and all the checkpoints that – like the end of the kayaking, they had, you know, fish and sweet potatoes and, um, you know, they just tried to show part of their local economy or their local community and, and were just giving it to the racers, which was amazing. And, um, yeah, yeah I think they, uh, yeah. that was, that was my biggest takeaway was how great the, the local community was. The Namaqua yeah. land, um, West coast area is amazing. So. Did, yeah. Um, did the people, did they know what, have a clue what you were doing or did they just know that these nuts were coming through or did they understand how long you'd been out there? Or, and did they have a feeling for the race? Yeah, the people working checkpoints all definitely knew what was going on and they were great. Um, they had, no, I guess not checkpoints, all the transitions. And yeah. that one happened to be a checkpoint in the middle. But uh, anyway, they were all very aware of what we were going through they had um medics there that were draining blisters and putting iodine on people's feet um so like i said with the hospital the hospitality at these places was amazing um i didn't expect any of that going into it but uh yeah i, I feel like that was great and um yeah um, yeah, yeah. The, yeah the local community was amazing so, so being a rookie you didn't have a clue. What was what was what else was really surprising to you that or didn't fit your expectations of the race, good or bad? Yeah, I feel like um, my previous experience with endurance events is that the the faster you go, the harder it hurts, and you can control that pain by how hard you push. Right? Like if you're going to go faster, it hurts more. If you want it to hurt a little less, you can back off. Uh, this adventure race specifically, and I'm going to assume that most of them are like that. If you are going slow, you're out there so much longer and you're navigating at night. Like if we would have paddled and been there two hours earlier, it would have been easy for us to find the second creek bed. So then that would have saved us a couple hours of navigating. And then we would have been able, you know, to get on the bike during the daylight. So like all this stuff kind of compounds and, and starts getting harder and harder. Um, 
so the timing for this kind of put us in this mid zone. Like uh, Stefan, the race promoter, was talking about how the the fast teams would be getting to everything at a difficult time, and the middle of the pack and back would be coming in, you know, at the daylight for these hard sections. And we were kind of in this mid zone where we wanted to push and try to be competitive still, mm-hmm. but. Um, we were just kind of doing things at the tail end of when it was the most difficult, it seemed. And okay. if we probably would have, I think that if we would have slept that first night, it would have reset our timing and probably set us up a little better. But that was the biggest eye opener is that timing really is everything with the adventure racing specifically. Um, if you're like climbing Snookop, there's people that had these amazingly uh, good trips to the top with selfies at sunset, you know, and um, Snookop was a I believe it was a 6,200 foot peak that we were climbing. That might be high because I keep getting Snookop and Snooberg uh, mixed up. Um, but anyway, it's, I can't remember what the meters were off the map. But uh, anyway, you know, we started that climb from tree line at sunset. So for us, it was this scree scramble at night trying to avoid like a cliff to a waterfall on our right as we climbed up in the dark. And so my whole experience was headlamp and what I could see for 30 or 40 feet um, and what you could communicate by yelling back and forth uh, when it started getting windy. So um, that was a lot different than other people's experience, which was, you know, this amazing hike up to the top of the mountain where you can see the whole Cedarburg range. Um, So I still think it was one of the coolest experiences of my whole, you know, my whole trip was being up on the top of that in the wind um, you know, here in, in Colorado, we climb 14ers and tree line might be like whatever, 10,000, 11,000 feet. And so you do the last 3,000 feet to the top on some mixed scurry and rock. Um, so it's it very similar to that because, you know, tree lines at like 3,500 feet there and you're climbing to 55, 6,000 feet. Um, but very rarely would I ever look at sniffles and be like oh yeah it's sunset let's go climb to the top you know you'd always wake up early and and get a crack of dawn experience and so doing that at night and sending in the dark um all of that was very new and very exciting um that happens to be where i pulled my pulled my calf and i think um you know i climbed that very hard and um my calves were pretty tight going into the race um so i think a lot of it may have may have led from that but Ultimately, I kind of slipped on this rock and caught myself by my butt hitting my heel and stretching out my whole posterior chain like Achilles tendon calf hamstring. And um, and over the next hour or so descending, it just kind of seized up to where I was just a total gimp limping on my heel and, uh, you know, bumping my foot, sent kind of an electric current up through my leg. And um, we did the next nine miles or so down to the next transition um just with with me you know taking care and trying to move as fast as i could so i couldn't hold up wouldn't hold up the team but it put us considerably behind schedule and i think was a a main contributor in in us being short coursed later um but that's where i backed out was trying to avoid our team getting short coursed um so anyway yeah well you know that's uh it that's where the team comes in you did what you did what you needed to do and uh good good for you i'm i mean it sucks yeah. to get hurt but you did the right thing so cool yeah and i think we had all you know we'd had i know rick and i personally had talked about it quite a bit what would happen if somebody um 
you know, was injured and what would happen if somebody was just too tired to go on and kind of being a baby about it or, or whatever the, the differences were and how the team would handle it. And then we definitely talked about it as a team a couple of different times, um, once before Bend and once after Bend, once we knew what we were experiencing a little bit, and then definitely in the car before we started the race. Um, and I would say 99% of that decision was already made before we started. We just kind of had to assess it and see where we were at. And I know Rick, you know, Rick had talked about being retired from racing after this. I know it was taxing uh, time-wise on, on him and his family. And um, so, you know, being a, away from your family to train that much is tough. And his family still cooperates in a lot of the different adventures. But, you know, when you're doing... I don't know, 12 and 15 hour bike rides. It's pretty hard to get your family involved in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, it's, um, you gotta be a little selfish to do mm-hmm. it right, to do it. Yeah, anyway. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah. And, um, but yeah, I think that was a big part of it is that I didn't want to take from Rick's experience. You know, our, our number one goal was to finish as a four person team and be friends afterward. Um, yeah. and then, the, you know, the next goal was for, whoever wasn't injured to, to finish. Um, but it, it would really, you know, if we could have finished the whole course um, by a minute, you know, before cutoff, yeah. and that was an option, I, I would have continued on. Um, it was muscular pain, and so I knew it wouldn't be permanent. And um, I, I personally tried to tried to move as quickly as possible to see what was what we were capable of, and I, it just wasn't enough to, to be able to do it. And like I said, I think it was two in the morning when I when I slipped and fell over the next hours kind of when it tightened up um, we had to sleep for a couple hours because I was moving so slow we couldn't get to the transition before and we ended up finishing at like 4 p.m. Um, so from two in the morning to 4 p.m. to cover I think nine or ten miles it was extremely slow moving and yeah. um, and that was with a couple hours of shivering in a bivy sack uh, in the fog so um, yeah but yeah it's Sometimes, I mean, yeah, I mean, you've been doing this long enough. Sounds like to me, you 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 know how to make that decision and make the correct one. And sounds like it to me. Yeah, I I think it was the right decision. Even looking back at it, and you know, the team did get short course. They weren't able to go on the next trek. They kind of did the next bike ride, which was I think leg like six, and then leg seven was a pretty nasty trek. I think it was thirty-seven miles if you just nailed the navigation. Um, and it was very hard, and that's where the 300-foot rappel was, which we were all really looking forward to doing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they I think they missed that by a few minutes, actually, wow. which is really difficult um, to swallow. But um, I think with 37 miles still in it, it would have been tight on whether they would have finished. Um, and that was kind of with or without me. But... Uh, they ended up moving on to the next bike leg afterward, trucked to the beginning of the next bike leg, and then they were able to finish from there. And that was kind of after I was out of the scene, so I don't have a lot of the details. But yeah. um, I was just stoked to see them, you know, at the finish line. And um, Susie was doing media, so she was kind of reporting back to me. And, um, you know, everybody was in good spirits and, and moving forward and um, and happy. And I think that was the most important, important thing to to me personally is that we were all friends and, and doing well afterwards. So it is, I mean, it doesn't always happen, yeah. but it is. Um, all right. Yeah. So we're going to wrap this up here pretty quick. So sure. what do you, what do you, um, 
what's on the horizon for you know the summer or fall you got any more venture races other races what are you going to do for fun and when are you yeah, going to get married um, <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about fall of 2019 okay. uh, we'll see how that how the planning goes for that but uh, we're both pretty low stress low plan people so yeah. it might get postponed but fall in colorado is pretty amazing and it's yeah central point for both of our families uh, mine's in oregon and hers are in wisconsin so figured to fall in colorado would be pretty awesome sounds but, good uh, yeah. yeah and um this weekend i have a, a replay race from moab to st george on my road bike with a few friends um so that's i can't remember 550 miles or something like that we'll do it as a four-person team in a, in a motorhome and i'll get good sleep in between which is awesome cool um and that's just casual fun uh, I think it's yeah. supposed to be pretty warm, but it won't be the level of suffering that I was having before. So I'm yeah. excited about that. And, uh, but yeah, more just kind of canyons and campouts and, and fun summer in, in Western Colorado. I think this is, um, this is prime time to enjoy Moab before it gets too hot and, um, start getting into the high country for some trail runs. And, uh, Susie has really shown some interest in learning orienteering, which I um, I want to get some more practice at too. I was definitely not the navigator in the group, okay. and uh, I would like to get better at it so I can assist if needed, or or to take that role over in another team in the future if needed. But uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Okay, one one final question I think, and it's somewhat yeah. okay. You know, once in a while I ask a fairly serious question or interesting. I think. Um, do you, was this race hard enough that next time you're in a hard race, hard spot, you're going to go like, well, yeah, but it wasn't as hard as in, a, in Africa. That's a good question. It, it was a different type of hard. Um, and, and I experienced that the whole time, like, uh, at no point during Africa was there like were we never running too fast that it hurt were we never biking so hard that it hurt there was a hike a bike section that was pretty tough but i've hiked a bike before and there's a section in the mud where we're kind of tromping through so it's a different kind of pain for sure it was um like a slow ringing out of a towel um Mm -hmm. i was pushed well past my comfort zone that's for sure um but it was more like the sleep deprivation um i think the stress of like when we were lost, that was really stressful to me. And we were never like super lost. I think looking back at the dot, we um, jumped around a little bit in a few different points, but there was question marks for me on whether we knew where we were going in the right direction. Um, and I think we did a lot better navigating than a few other teams that were like way lost looking. And there was a couple teams that were so far off. I am surprised they never got a helicopter to come get them. But um, yeah, there was uh so yeah, I think, um, it was more mental toughness than anything. So, yeah, I think there's definitely times where I'll be digging deep and be like, you know, this wasn't as, as bad as that. Um, with everything, I mean, I guess I, I forgot about the kayaking. See, the sleep deprivation already took that away from me. So that was um, a really hard experience for me. Um, yeah. You know, muscle spasms and still trying to be part of a team and push on where if I was by myself, I would have pulled over on the side and stretched out for, you know, 45 minutes and ate something and gone on. But, um, so yeah, that was definitely a situation where I had to dig deep, but, um, yeah, I, I think it definitely helped me mentally for other things, but in kind of a different way than what I was expecting. So yeah. I don't know if I cool. botched that answer or not, but 
no, that sounds like a really good, actually kind of a good way to describe adventure racing. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was and weird. you liked it. There's, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a great experience. I'm already trying to figure out how to get back to South Africa. Even if I don't go there for an adventure race in the future, I definitely want to go back to travel. Um, yeah. In my finish line interview with with Craig and and Heidi, um, yeah. that was one of my one of my things I said was go back and enjoy the Cedarburg Mountains. Just give yourself like three days instead of twenty four hours. You know, sometimes but, that's um, yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was a it was a beautiful area, and um, I like I said I really liked the people a lot. We already made some good friends there, and I would love to go back for for Expedition Africa in the future. Um, I think it's kind of a bummer that the, you know, like I was saying, Rick, um, Rick is probably looking at retiring. Um, I haven't talked to Ben about it since, but he seemed to be on that same page. Um, yeah. Jen seems really stoked, really excited about it. Um, yeah. but it's been kind of hard to train with her living in Washington and us being in Colorado. So, yeah, um, it can be tough. So, well, there's yeah, a growing community yeah. there in Colorado. So, yeah, you know what? Um, I think uh, I'm hoping to do some shorter ones with Susie and test our relationship before we get married. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, okay. Here's here's my final words of wisdom. Um, yeah. Paul and I, we'd actually never really raced together. We'd race same races, but I didn't adventure race. But um, there's a lot of episodes of couples that race together on the podcast, so you can learn. <laughs> All right, that's good. So. All right. Oh, um, all right. As usual, about this time of night, I got to go take the dog for a walk. So this was um, very enjoyable. I'm glad I got to meet you, and hopefully, we'll catch up somewhere down the line at a race and say, "Hey, yeah, I know great. you." So yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate you reaching out. It's definitely good to meet you, and um, yeah, it's neat that there's some. Uh, it's neat you had Sarah on there before, and and um, had some connection um, previous yeah. and. Anyway, yeah, it's, I uh, look forward yeah, to checking out more. Yeah, it's uh, six degrees of separation. Every, you guys all yeah. know each other, so. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, well, all right, well, thanks very much for the entrance, interest. Yep. Uh, okay, thanks. Bye. 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 <laughs>